Well, let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read verse 5, and we're going to go through, uh, Lord willing, verse 16. In honor of God's precious word, if you're physically able, could you stand with me as we read it? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not in my, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works within you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may be blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Um, please be seated. Thank you for standing. That's the word of the living God. We've been looking at this scripture in the mind of Christ and talking about the mind of Christ and just reflecting back on it, um, asking ourselves the question over the last couple of weeks, does our life and the, the way that we live it confirm the gospel or is our life a contradiction to the gospel? It is one or the other. And for those of us who are, cl those who are closest to us know pretty much which one it is. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a room and you've been talking to somebody and you've been, uh, especially when it's people who are particularly quiet, maybe you know somebody in your life who is a friend of yours and they're just, they're just their demeanor, their bent, their disposition is they're just quiet people. They don't say much. And, you, and you, when you get around somebody like that, especially somebody you have a relationship with, you know and you care about, you often think this, I wonder what's on their mind. I wonder what they're thinking. And I, I do that with my children all the time. I just look at them and, I, and sometimes I'll just outright ask them, what are you thinking? Um, and uh, what's going on inside your mind? I want to get inside there somehow or another and, um, and, and find out what's going on. Or maybe my wife, you know, when uh, uh, she's going through a bad time or whatever, or there seems to be a disconnect between us. And I just want to know what's going on in your mind. <clears throat> well, aren't you grateful that we can look at our Savior and we don't have to speculate or wonder at all about what's going on in his mind? Because we have it right here. We talk about this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to tell us what that mind is. And that mind is a mind of love. And we talked about the fact that this text is not about what love is, but this text is about what love does. And when you discover what love does, that's how you know what love is. And agape love, uh, the love of God, which is in a category all its own, Agape, the Greek word from which love is translated in the New Testament when it speaks of the love of God. 
We coined kind of a working definition of that, and it's really based on this text and some of the parallel texts, and that's this, that agape love is, is that we'd be willing to and actually lay down our lives for the spiritual benefit of others. Surely Jesus did that. We talk about the fact that he died for us, but you know what? He also lives for us. The Bible says in Romans 5.10 that we were reconciled to God and saved. Uh, our sins were forgiven by his death, but we're saved by his life. This union that we have now with Jesus. That salvation is not just about a set of facts that we believe, although it is truth that we believe. But that truth is the doorway through which God has purchased a relationship with us. And this mind of Christ is, is given to us in this text that though, he were, though He's God, He came down here and became a man and He gives this opportunity throughout the Scriptures and we're going to look at a couple of them for people to confess that very thing. That confession is salvation. To, to believe that Christ came, that He is God, that He's deity, but He did become a man, that He willingly offered Himself up on the cross in payment for our sins is our substitutionary lamb, substitutionary atonement, that he, that he died in our place, as Chad was talking about and celebrating a few moments ago in his own salvation. And that now he was raised from the dead because the text implies that he was raised from the dead because therefore, in verse 9, God has highly exalted him. He's very much alive. He's given him the name which is above every name and at that name every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. We talked about over the last couple of months or weeks, it might seem like months, but over the last couple of weeks that, that what he did there should govern all our human relationships. It should be the standard by which our relationships is measured. Where am I giving in my marriage? Where am I giving in my family? Where am I giving in my work? Where am I giving in my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ in the church? In other words, is there genuine humility in those relationships? When you think of the pride of man and you look at what Jesus did on the cross, doesn't it make it a, our pride a despicable thing? In light of the glory of Calvary and that what God was willing to do, that He came down here, emptied Himself, and not only died, did die of natural causes, but died at the hands of an ex executioner as a common criminal. Stripped naked and put on a trash heap outside the streets of Jerusalem in our place. And then we hold on to any kind of pride that we might have. That confession changes everything. We talked about how that, that confession changes the way you live. It must change the way we live if it's real. And that these relationships should be governed. That should be the standard by which our relationships are, are, are measured. But I want you to look, we're going to look at a couple of things before we go into the Lord's Supper. That this confession is so the centerpiece of the gospel that Jesus, and we're going to show you in two occasions, where he put himself in a position and put others around him in a position to either make this confession or deny it. One or the other. Now the first one we want to look at is Luke chapter 19. Let's go look at Luke chapter 19. You know the story, and we're in Luke's account of it because it's just a little bit shorter than the one in Matthew. But this is, and Mark, but this is where he cleanses the temple. He goes in, they're buying and selling in the temple. Jesus overturns the tables, calls them on the carpet for doing so, making the Father's house a den of thieves when it is to be a 
house of prayer. You recall the story, but I want you to look at what happens here. Let's look at Luke chapter 19, verse 45 and following. It says, Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now, let's move into chapter 20, verse 1. Now it happened, on one of those days he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke of him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things, or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing, and, they, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? Well, they have their little unholy huddle. They reason among themselves according to verse 5, and they're saying this, Hey, if we say it's from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say it's from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered him that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Do you know what he was giving them an opportunity to do? He was giving them an opportunity to either confess or deny that God came in the flesh. See, the teaching of John and the ministry of John the Baptist was, there's one coming after me whose sandal strap, I don't even have, I'm not even worthy to loosen it. He's the Lamb of God. I'm the forerunner. I'm the one to point to the one who is to come. And I'm not the one. I'm here to point you to the one who is to come. And when he comes, he is going to save you from your sins. And when John the Baptist saw him in John chapter 1, verse 29, for the first time as an adult, the first words out of his mouth were, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus has given them an opportunity to do on this side of eternity what everyone will do on the other side of eternity. And that is this. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now there was no, there was no answer on their part. There was no answer. And Jesus said, okay, if you're not going to confess that, you get no answers from me. Let me tell you something. In order to have answers from Jesus, you've got to have a relationship with Him. See, and, and if you question His authority and you question who He is, and there are question marks over the text in your mind's eye or someone you know in their mind's eye in Philippians chapter 2, did God become a man? Did you get no further with Him? He's got no more answers for you. He said the dialogue is shut down. If you're not willing to make this confession, if it's not in you to make this confession, you and I have got nothing to talk about. Because see, my relationship with the Lord and any answers I get from Him are from a relationship. And it has to be predicated upon a relationship whereby I was purchased by Him at Calvary. I'm under His authority. He's Lord. And a Christian confesses on this side of eternity what everyone will confess on the other, and that is that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. He gave them a divinely appointed opportunity to confess. Let me tell you something. Let me bring it home, Christian. If you have question marks over the authorities in your life, the authorities in your life are placed there by God. You look at your husband, wife, and 
I have a question, Marshall, on how he's leading. I married the wrong man. Well, whatever the enemy tries to get you to believe, or maybe I made a mistake, or whatever. Let me tell you something. God put you under His authority. And to put question marks over that means you don't get any answers from Him. You know what? You might be working for somebody who's very difficult to work for. You look at them and go, and this is often the case. This has happened to me. When I was in the banking business, I, was, I remember this not fondly, but I remember it well. I used to have to report to somebody who knew an eighth of what I knew about the job. But you know what? If I don't submit to that authority and I keep putting question marks over it, I get no answers from God. I get no answers from God. If In the church, in relationships with the church, the relationships you find the most difficult are the ones where God's doing His greatest work. Don't run away from them. Run to them. Try to work things out. Because here's the deal. If we put question marks over these relationships, we're questioning God and where He planted us for this season of our life. We get no real answers from Him. Children, obey your parents and submit to the authority of your parents. If you want direction and guidance and leadership from the Holy Spirit, you've got to receive them as being your authorities placed there by God for your protection. You might disagree with them. You might disagree with them often. But if you're disagreeable and you disagree, you get no answers from God. So he said, listen, you've got, to, you've got to make this confession on this side of eternity. I am Lord. And by that time, when you do that, we've got a relationship. Things are on. We've got a relationship. You'll get answers from me. Look at Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. It says in verse 29. Excuse me, verse uh, 35. Jesus said this. They're questioning him about the greatest commandment. And he comes around after that and answers their question and then turns around. And he said, let me ask you a question. 35. Jesus answered them and said while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is it that he is his son? And the common people heard him gladly. That's one of the most encouraging scriptures in all the Bible. I'd like to be common. If common people can hear from God, put me in that category. See, the common people just received the testimony. You had to figure it out. You had to understand it. Remember, my understanding is not my authority. The Word of God is. There's a lot of things I don't understand about God, but I can believe them nonetheless. Because the Bible teaches them. I'm sorry about the candy in my mouth, but this thing's killing me. Okay, here's the deal. Just bear with me. Here's what he said. David, I mean Jesus, quoting from David in Psalm 110, says this. Let me pose a question to you. The Lord, God the Father says to the Lord, God the Son, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that's going on right now. There's going to come a day when Jesus Christ is going to break through the eastern sky. He's going to sit down on this earth. He's going to establish His rule and reign in every kingdom and every authority will be brought to naught and will come under His authority. Hallelujah. Alright, he says, listen to this. He said, but if, the, if, if he says, if David says this, and by the way, this gives you some insight right there when it says in verse 36 what Jesus thought of the Old Testament being inspired by the Holy Spirit. For David himself said, 
by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord, but how is it then, if David refers to him as Lord, that he can be David's son at the same time? You know the answer to that? The answer to that is found in Philippians chapter 2. That God became a man. And yet again, he's given them an opportunity to confess what you and I confess that leads to our salvation. It is the doorway to our salvation to make this confession that yes, God did become a man. That He did come down here in the form of flesh. He took on human flesh. He didn't regard equality as with God as something to be held on to. He said, The Lord, God the Father, said to God the Son, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And nobody would take Him to task over that because that's Psalm 110. Quoted directly from there. But then he turns around and says, but yet David calls the Messiah his son. How could he be his son and his Lord at the same time? Because God became flesh. He was giving them an opportunity to do what we as Christians do in this life. And that is that we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The common people heard that. You know why there is, you know why you know why God gives marriages and family relationships as a, do, you, do you know why he gives them he does it to, for, 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 for procreation that's his divine order he does do that for that reason that's the framework in which healthy and nurturing discipleship ultimately and optimally takes place is in the marriage and healthy marriages and if there's not a healthy marriage in your home God can still do it nonetheless he's still Lord you faithfully trust him but in theory, that's what he does. That's what he wants to do is produce godly seed through marriages. But you know what? And he works through the family relationships. He works through church relationships. He works through employee-employer relationships. He's doing all of that, and he's doing that to portray a picture of the truth that we find in Philippians chapter 2. Now I want you to look at this. Let's look at Luke chapter 20. Go over with me. Luke chapter 20. We were in the neighborhood a while ago with that. This confession. Is he Lord? Does this confession make any difference? Why don't you look at Luke chapter 20. Here we are with the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection, which we talked about before. That makes you sad, you see. They did not believe in the resurrection. And they asked him a question on resurrection, trying to paint him into a corner. <laughs> paint God into a corner. What arrogance. And they pose this scenario where a man has a wife and he dies. And the law says that she's supposed to take the, his brother, next brother in line is supposed to take her as a wife. And then so on and so forth in order to have children. And they had seven brothers and all seven brothers died and then the wife died. And they're saying, we're going to stump you now. Let me see if you can answer this question. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? You know, look what he says in verse 34. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now why is that? Well, we know there's, no, there's not going to be any more procreation. There's not going to be any more children. That's it. He's going to shut it down one day. The end of this age is going to be consummated and then we're going to be into eternity. But why do you think that marriage is not needed in heaven? The example is not needed anymore. 
the example's not needed anymore. See, your marriage is so sacred to God that He ordained it to give it as a living, breathing example between you and the relationship with your husband and your husband and your relationship with you that it's so precious in the Lord's sight. He gives that as an example so that you can discern truth and know where you stand in regard to His relationship with His bride, the church. Now see, in eternity, that example is not going to need to be there anymore. You know why? Because our marriage with Jesus is going to be consummated. He's going to take upon His bride. God's going to deliver His bride up to Him. And we're not going to need the example anymore. That's why there's not going to be any marriage in heaven. Everything Jesus touches, He elevates. And everything that we touch, we demean. Marriage is such a slow ebb to nowadays. It's, such a, it's at the lowest common denominator. Even, I'm afraid, in Christian circles. And we should get back and get up with the truth that you know what? This thing's way bigger than you and I. The perspective would be God, how would you want to glorify your great name through my union with my wife? And Lord, let me ask you a question. Right now, with the way I'm acting as a husband, are you being glorified? <laughs> this is going to sound... T rough and tough maybe. And maybe, and maybe it might rub you the wrong way. But by and large, since I've been in the ministry, I've learned this. I've learned a couple of things. And one of the things I've learned is, is that oftentimes in churches, and I've been in bigger churches, and I've been in smaller churches and everything in between, the weakest service you ever have during the year is Resurrection Sunday celebration called Easter. Because people come that day who have so little regard for the resurrection that they only find themselves able to come and celebrate it one time per year. It's usually your spiritually weakest service of the year. We pour everything into it, rightfully so. But we've gotten out of balance because we should be celebrating every single... You know what? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. If He's raised from the dead, if Jesus did come, and if He is God and He did become a man, here's the $64,000 question today. How does that affect... And should it affect the way you live? How does it affect the way you give? How does it affect the way you pray? How does it affect your relationships? Because here's the deal. These are all P's. I want you to remember this. He pursues us. The Bible says that no man seeks after God. No, not one. I, my life, from the time I came out of my mother's womb has been a series, a litany, a sordid tale of doing everything I possibly could to run away from God. He chased me. I praise His name for that. And then He purchased me. He purchased me. The Bible says that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He purchased you and I with His blood. And then He gave me the gift of repentance. The Bible says repentance is granted. That repentance is a gift. The Bible says according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that so is faith. Faith is a gift. He gave me the gift of repentance. He gave me the faith to believe. And I professed. And when I professed, I became one of His own. So he, purchased, he pursued me. He purchased me. He gave me a profession that's changed me forever. Now he possesses me. He possesses me. Did you know that we have been bought from the slave trade of sin? We've been bought from the marketplace of sin. 
the only price that would secure our freedom was the blood of Jesus Christ. And not only was that the only price that could be paid, but praise His holy name, He paid it. Hallelujah. And He took us off the market trade of sin and put us into His kingdom of the Son of His love and we are not available anymore. We're married to Christ. He possesses us. Then that gives me a position. I've got standing with God. The Bible says, As many as received Him, to them He gave a right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. We receive, we believe, we receive, and we become. The Bible says, What love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. We're His children. We're sons and daughters. We're joint heirs with Christ. So He pursues us. He purchased us, we profess, and then now we're possessed with Him. We've been bought with a price. Now we have a position, and when you understand that position, that will alter your passions. You begin to understand what He did for you at Calvary. Begin to understand the doctrinal truth upon the blood atonement of Christ and the fact that we're accepted of the Beloved, that we've been raised to walk according to Ephesians chapter 6 in newness of life. We're a brand new people. We're a brand new species. We are in union with Jesus. Because He lives, we too shall live. We're sons and daughters of the living God. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We've, been, we've received forgiveness through the redemption and the purchase of His blood. We're children of the living God. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. When He died, we died. And when He was raised, we were raised. We're going to be presented before the Father one day, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Hallelujah. So He pursues us. Then He purchased us with His blood. Then we profess through a gift from Him. Then we're possessed by Him. I am His, and as I said a while ago, He is mine. Hallelujah. And then it changes us, and we have a new position that will alter our, our passions. And let me tell you what that will do. That will manifest itself in our practice. It means that we will live differently. That's what it means. It means we'll live differently. That's what it means right here. It says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We work out that which has been implanted in. Be careful with that verse. That does not mean that we work for our salvation means that that which is within, sooner or later, through fear and trembling of a holy God based on the position we have with Him in Christ, should manifest itself without. You cannot impart that which you don't possess. Calvin said it best. We are not saved by faith and works, but we are saved by a faith which does work. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Don't wait. Don't wait until you're painted into the corner to do that. I've got a personal testimony regarding my father in that regard. We found out that my father, you've heard my testimony about him before, but I'm going to tell you something right now. The reason I tell this is, is because God did this in our lives. I'm, I'm not going to shut up about what God's done. God willing, I'm not going to shut up. We found out that my dad had cancer. We found out from the oncologist in South Georgia. That's where I'm from. <coughs> We held out hope that if we come up here to Atlanta, maybe if we go to the Cancer Center at Emory University, we might hear some hope. Maybe we might hear something different than what we heard in South Georgia. I mean, after all, if you you know way across Georgia, you're thinking, man, maybe they can do something at Emory. And you're desperate. So we come up here, and I'll never forget it. My mother and my father and I went to see this oncologist at the Windshape 
Cancer Center at Emory. Some of you might have been treated there, had people that you know have been treated there. It's a wonderful place. But we got assigned a pretty, we got assigned a doctor who had zero bedside manner. He comes walking in, and they got the x rays of my dad sitting up there. And I remember standing there beside him, and we had already known that it was probably some things that we probably didn't want to hear. But he looked at him and he said, uh, he said, all right, what's the, give, me, give it to me straight up. He said, well, it's incurable. And he says, so you mean that there's, there's nothing, I mean, this is it? He said, yep, it's going to do you in. I saw he said, yep, this, was gonna, this is going to do you in. That's exactly how he informed my father that he was dying. I want to knock him to next county. i just tell you that right now. I'm not trying to be spiritual. I want, that's what I wanted to do. Thank God I didn't do it. But if I was more focused on my father at the time, because I'm going to tell you what it looked like. It looked like you taking your fist and just running as far as you could into his chest like that and knock the breath out of him. He bent over double like that. I'll never forgive him. I thought I was going to have to hold him up because he was going to pass out. And here he's going to die. His faith was either non-existent or dormant up to that time. Non-existent or dormant. So much so that I, my, I was harassed as a child. Many of you have parents who are not saved. So I'm not saying that I've experienced something you haven't experienced. And I, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. You're in, I know the contortion in your spirit of a lost parent. And maybe you don't even have parents at all. But let me tell you, this is my story. This is my experience. So much so that I, there was so much doubt over my dad's salvation that I, I, I was constantly praying and asking God. And I asked him one time, I said, are you saved? There's no evidence in your life whatsoever to me that you have any regard for Jesus at all. But here when he heard that, and normally when you're at four, stage four cancer, I asked his doctor, I said, we, my mother and I went when it was close to the end. And I went to his doctor, we went to his doctor in White Cross because by the time we found out, there was nothing he could do with him. I was going to be treated in White Cross. God used that. And we went and set up, set up an appointment with just the doctor. We're standing there. I said, let me ask you a question. How did my dad come to you? He said, stage four. What do you normally give somebody stage four? Six months. God gave us 27. 27 with no hair loss. 27 with no nausea. 27 with nothing. 27 with clarity. 27 months that either faith that was non-existent came to life or faith that was dormant came to life. But nonetheless, faith came to life. And let me tell you what happened. At that point in time, he started working out his salvation with fear and trembling. Now it took fear and trembling for him to work it out. Do you get me? And here's what I'm, I would plead with you this morning. Don't let it take fear and trembling before you go to fearing and trembling. Don't let it take fear and trembling before you go to fearing and trembling. Because if faith is really in there, if faith is really in there, and we need to examine ourselves and see if we are of the faith, it will manifest itself in the way that you live. It just flat will sooner or later. He pursues us. He purchased us. Gave us the faith to profess. Now we're possessed. And now we have a new position that alters our passions. And when your passions are altered, it will alter your practice and the way you live. It'll just flat do it. Now, here we are coming to this Lord's Supper. And we're going to have this wonderful opportunity. And Pastor Dave's going to come up and lead us in this. Just bring it home right here. Let me ask you a question.
does what you profess manifest itself in the way you practice? Has it had an impact on you? If he is alive, what does that mean to me? See, there are people that are celebrating this day today or just because it's a rite of passage for spring. The flowers are out, the birds and the pollen and everything else that goes along with it and all the pomp and circumstance of spring. And it's just what you do during the spring. And you know what? They're not at all given any weight or consideration to what does the resurrection not only mean for Christianity, because we know without the resurrection we have no gospel to preach, but what does it mean for you? And what does it mean for me? That's the question. Here we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. What does it mean to you and to me? Are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Is what's in there starting to come out? Is there enough evidence in your life to convict you of your profession? If somebody took a strong look at it, why don't you take a little strong look at it? And don't wait till you start fearing and trembling to start fearing and trembling. Start now. Because he's Lord. And everybody on the other side of eternity is going to confess what we get to confess right now. And that is he's Lord to the glory of God the Father.